0: If you have a Bible, Colossians chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Have you ever felt spiritually dry? Maybe you feel that way now. And at the end of 2019, um, it had been just a mad dash to the end of the year for me um, and for Courtney. I mean, 2019 is like the craziest year ever for the Edminsons. Um We got married uh, which is a huge change. It's awesome, but it's a huge change. Uh, we started serving here as the pastor. Huge change. We walked through a church replant, uh, or we're still walking through that, uh, where we brought two struggling churches together. Um, that's hard. Um, we have been trying to get to know people. That's hard, especially for me. I'm an introvert. Um, So we just, it was like a mad dash. And then on top of all that, we found out that we are pregnant, which is awesome too, but also just like another thing, you know, um, on top of all of this other change. And so the end of 2019, I was just like honestly exhausted, just exhausted. And I was taking a little bit of time to pause and reflect. And I just, I sensed, you know, there's something that's not as rich as it once was. I was just, I was noticing that I'm, I'm getting dry. And about that time, Clayton wrote a song called Enamored, and he texted it to me. And that song, just listening to it, from the first moment that I listened to it, it was just like a cup of water for my heart. Have you ever experienced something like that? where you could tell that you were dry, but this, this thing, this gift that someone gave you just filled you up. So I started listening to that song, and I thought, God, this is what I need. I need to have my heart and my attention refocused on who Jesus is. And then at the start of the year, I was reading through the book of Colossians, um, and I got to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, And it says him we proclaim, referring to Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul says this in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And he goes on to say, I want you to know how hard I'm working for you. I want you to know how much of myself I'm giving to this work of helping you get to know jesus that you might be mature in him and so i had this song called enamored that was ministering to me and i read this in colossians 1 and i thought that's what we need right now and so i don't know if you're walking through a season of dryness i don't know if you're walking through a season of feeling like you know is there more is there more that we're missing spiritually i don't know if that's you but certainly you've been there before But this book of Colossians is all about getting our eyes focused on who Jesus is and how great he is. And when we do that, it says that we're going to be filled up. We're going to be filled up in fullness. The idea of fullness is a theme of this letter, and we're going to see that as we walk through it together over the next couple months. But that's my prayer for you as we start this series, that you would be full. That you would be full. Now, I think that Colossians is not just relevant, though, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but I think that it's also relevant for you if you are wondering. If you're new to exploring faith in Jesus, or maybe you are old to the hut, but you have um, started to explore other ways of connecting with God or connecting with spirituality. um, I think that the book of Colossians is for you as well. Um, And here's what I mean. Um, Americans today are um, starting to pursue what is called spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. Um, In fact, one in five Americans would identify that way. They would say, I'm a spiritual person, but I don't subscribe to any particular religion. Um, Matthew Hedstrom is a professor of religion at the University of Virginia, and he describes it this way. This is on the screen for you. He says the spiritual but not religious designation is about seeking rather than dwelling. In the process of traveling around, reading books, and experimenting with new rituals, you can find your identity out there. If you read enough, if you investigate enough, if you experiment enough spiritually, then eventually you'll find who you really are. You'll find your identity, he says. And that is such a prevalent thing today. Um, when I was a youth pastor in Seattle, uh, we would have students who would come to our youth ministry who were just seeking something spiritually. Now they were also using Ouija boards and all kinds of New Age stuff that I didn't know. I thought like you know that was like just very outlandish thing, but that's a very mainstream thing. Um, that's happening, and so there's this desire to connect spiritually, and the idea of our culture, the way that you connect spiritually is you just you experiment with lots of different things. Um, In fact, uh, one more quote here with you um, that I want to share with you. Natasha Scripture is her name. Um, She writes for The Atlantic. And um, she went to this spiritual retreat that she paid like $700 to go to. And um, she's reflecting on that experience. And here's what she says. But in the end, shouldn't the cost of finding God be priceless? As in free Of course, but I'm not paying to find God. I'm paying to remove the obstacles to finding God or universal energy or however you define the thing that we're all seeking. I know I don't need my MasterCard to find it, but it sure can open the doors to places and things that help me explore myself and the meaning of my existence. Or maybe I'm just a sucker. (laughs) Or maybe I just buy, you know, all of these books and all these experiences because I just am gullible. But that's what I'm seeking, is I want to connect with the divine somehow. I I want to discover the meaning of my existence somehow. And so the idea is to look in as many different places as possible to discover what might work for you. And the reason the book of Colossians applies to that is because it was a very similar situation happening in the city of Colossae. In the city of Colossae, Um, these people had become Christians. They had started following Jesus. But then they started to second guess. Is this all we need? Are we missing out on some kind of divine experience if we just focus on Jesus? And they were in a small town, but they were along this big major road. And so occasionally they would have people pop into their town and share new ideas with them. And so they started to wonder, should we begin to experiment with some of these other spiritual practices? And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to let them know that everything you need to connect with the divine is found in Jesus. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so that's what the book of Colossians is all about. Today, we're just going to look at the introduction. And in this introduction, what we're going to see is how spiritual people and spiritual families are formed. How spiritual people and a spiritual family are formed. That's what we're going to see. And the answer (laughs) is the gospel. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you're like, Nate, you seem to think that lots of stuff is solved in the gospel. And that is true. But we're going to see why today. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Here is the main point today. This is going to be on the screen. Now, this is a big main point, all right? This goes against everything that you should ever do. Um, But here is the main point of Colossians 1, 1 through 8. The gospel is a seed-like message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus. For all people that takes root by faith, produces a loving family, and is delivered by faithful praying servants. That's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, 1 through 8 today. The gospel is a seed-like message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus for all people that takes root by faith, produces a loving family, and is delivered by faithful, praying servants. So what we're going to do is read this text together, and then we're going to unpack that statement. And I'm going to show you how we came up with that. Okay? So Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it has also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is God's Word. So first, the gospel is a seed-like message. It's a seed-like message. Um, Look at verses five and six again. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is, notice this, notice the metaphor he uses. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you also since the day you heard it. So, the gospel, the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, is a seed like message. It's like a farmer who plants seeds. And Jesus uses the same metaphor in Mark chapter 4. He says, The sower goes out to the field and sows the word, and it lands in the soil, and then it produces fruit. Now, some of it lands on different types of soil, and so the fruit doesn't produce, but it's the same concept here. The gospel, the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity is like a seed that must be scattered consistently. And it's like a seed that you have to patiently wait to see results from. So Christianity, the gospel, is far more like a farm than a factory. And that goes against typical American consumerism. Because in America, we want to see results now. We want to see things happen. Hey, what's happening at your church? When you go to a pastor's little meetup, here's what they do. They ask you, how many people are at your church? They ask you, how's the giving going? They want to see, how are we doing? How are the metrics? Like it's a factory. Like, hey, if you just, you know, preach better sermons and have better signage out front and a better website, then everything will take off. But that's factory-like thinking. That's thinking like a floorman who's managing the factory. But Christians are called to think like farmers. We plant and then we wait. This means that for Christianity to grow, it requires consistency in the scattering and patience in the results. This means that you may plant lots of seeds before one takes root. This is one of the reasons why I believe personally in regularly preaching through books of the Bible. Now, we won't always preach through books of the Bible. Sometimes we'll do topical series. Those are important. But one of the reasons that I think we should regularly try to preach through books of the Bible is because it's like planting seeds. And over time, consistently listening to faithful exposition of Scripture will get in your heart and change you. So there's consistency in the scattering because it's like a seed, and there's also patience in waiting for results. When a seed is planted, it might take root and it might be years before you see the result of that. And that again, that flies against everything that we want to see in our desire for spirituality in our country because we want spirituality to be like Netflix, but it's far more like a farm. Do you know how long it takes for trees to grow? Here are just some typical trees, how long they take to grow. Peach trees, two to four years nectarines, two to four years, apricots, apricots, not sure how to say that one, two to five years, apples, two to five years, sour cherries, three to five years, sweet cherries, four to seven years, plums, three to six years, pears, four to six years. It's a long time. So Paul, because he knows that, because he knows that the gospel is like a seed that's planted, he says, we always thank God. This is verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Why is he so thankful? Because when you recognize that the gospel is like a seed that must be planted and it's going to take years to grow. When you start to see fruit, you get really thankful for that. You start to recognize that the work I've put in is, there's some fruit from it. There's fruit from the labor. And so you're excited about that and you're also protective of that fruit. You want to make sure that it's not torn apart by all of these other false teachings. So you're very protective and you're excited when you start to see fruit. Let me give you an example. My uh, sister-in-law, Jamie Lee, uh, has a, a lemon tree in her house. And her house is small and she has three tiny little kids that are always running around. And so I'm always chasing them around her house, but then she will like snap at me when I get too close to that lemon tree because there's just like two lemons on there right now. There was one that fell off and she was really angry about that. And I didn't understand. I was like, look, you can buy lemons at the store. <laughs> All right, like you don't need this tree. It's just in the way, it's a small house. But she's, she is so thankful whenever she starts to see little Lemons come, and she is so protective of that tree. And the reason is because she knows how long it takes to plant the tree. And that's how Paul is with this message. Christianity is the result of a seed that is planted. You want to know how to connect with God? It's not by you buckling up and climbing this spiritual mountain, and it's not by you diving in and exploring who you really are like a cave. Instead, it's you viewing your heart like soil that needs to receive a seed. So the gospel is a seed-like message. And what is the message that's being sown? What is the message that's being planted? It's a message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus. Where did I get that from? Look at verse five. He says, Because... So we've heard about your love that you have for the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. So he says the gospel is a message of hope. It's a message of hope. What does that mean? It means that it is a message that brings an optimistic future. It's a message that brings the longing and the promise of a glorious future, even after death. Um, In Colossians 1.27, Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the hope we have is a hope for glory, Paul says in Colossians 1. Um, in Colossians 3, 4, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, meaning when he returns back to the earth someday, which he will do, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the hope that we have is a hope for glory. Do you know what glory is? Glory is when your existence has weight and meaning and value. So Natasha's scripture is looking for meaning in her life. Paul says, here's a message that brings meaning and brings hope. Here's a message that brings a weight for your existence, that gives purpose to your existence. It's a message of hope about Jesus. So, what is the message of hope that we have? It's a hope for glory, yes, but what does that mean? At least three things, probably more. It's a hope that we will enter God's kingdom. We will enter God's kingdom. Someday, Jesus will return, set up a new kingdom on the earth. It's going to be great. And We get to enter that kingdom by receiving this word, by receiving this seed, by believing the message. So, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. This is Jesus talking. He says, when the Son of Man, that's himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice the glory imagery. Verse 32, before him, will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus promises entrance into God's kingdom for those who receive the message. So it's glory. It's glorious because you get to enter the kingdom. It's also glorious because you get a resurrected, glorious body like Jesus's. First Corinthians, chapter fifteen, verses fifty through fifty-four. Listen to this. I tell you this, brothers: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse fifty-one. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must must put on immortality. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. "'O death, where is your victory? "'O death, where is your sting?' That's the future for people with Jesus. In the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead in a glorious body, so those who belong to Jesus by faith will be raised from the dead in a glorious body. And this is great news for you. This is a message of hope for you. Because some of you know what it's like to go to the doctor and learn that you have cancer. Or to go to the doctor and learn that you can't walk like you used to. Or you're going to have to have surgery now. Or you know what it's like for your memory to not be what it used to be. You know what that's like. And the future for you is a future where, just like Jesus was raised from the dead, so you will be raised from the dead. That's your future, a resurrected, glorious body. And it's hopeful because it it promises us rich, satisfying life that never ends. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the future of people who belong to Jesus. And that is good news and that good news is a message of hope. It's also a message of truth, Paul says. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is, it is bearing fruit and increasing. He says, Not only is it a message of hope, but it's a message of truth. And the word truth here just means it's real. It's based in reality. That's what the word truth means. So anybody can stand up and make promises about hope for the future. None of that is helpful, regardless of how sentimental and how great it might sound. None of it is helpful unless it's true, unless it's real. And Paul is saying, The seed that we are to receive is not just hopeful, but it's also real. It's also true. And the reason that it's true is because Jesus really has come. Jesus really has lived. He really has died, and he really has been raised from the dead. He really has ascended to be with his father, and he really will return. It's a message that's based in reality. Christianity is not head in the clouds, you know, turn off, put the blinders on so you don't see the the real world. Christianity is... The realest way of viewing the world. That everything really is broken and there is hope. That's Christianity. It's not blind optimism and it's not hopeless pessimism, it's reality. The world is dark, Jesus has overcome. Christians are not afraid of new information. We're not afraid of science. We're not afraid of some new discovery. In fact, we welcome those things. It was the Christian worldview that gave birth to much of that exploration because we believe that the real world matters because God made it. He entered it. And he was crucified in it and raised in it. And he will return to remake it someday. So Christians believe in a message of truth and a message that's real. And Paul describes this message. It's a message of hope, yes, truth, yes, and all of this is grace, he says. It's grace. Verse six, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So this message, this seed that's planted, is a message of hope, truth, and grace. Grace just means it's something generous that you don't deserve. It's a gift that you don't deserve. We do not deserve the hope that is promised us in the gospel. Entering God's kingdom, you do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. Being Resurrected in a glorious body like Jesus, you do not deserve that. I do not deserve that. Experiencing rich, eternally satisfying life where there's no more mourning and no more death, we do not deserve that. That is a gift that comes from God in Jesus. And that's what Paul is so excited about here. And throughout this book, he, throughout this letter, he gives so much Information about that gift. He says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 13, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He says in 114 that in Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness. He says in 122 that we were alienated and enemies of God, but he has reconciled us and made us holy uh, Chapter 2, verse 13 says he made us alive and forgave us in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 14 says that he erased our debt and nailed it to the cross. He says that Jesus triumphed over all the spiritual powers of darkness for us. All of that is a generous gift that we do not deserve. And the reason that we don't deserve glory is because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Think about that. Do you see the picture Paul's painting here? Everybody in the world falls short of God's glory. We are trapped in the domain of darkness. That is the place where evil and misery and loneliness and sorrow and self-centeredness lives. We will all be trapped there and we will all pay someday for our sins. But... God, in his grace, sends his son Jesus to come into the darkness to set us free. A light has dawned, Isaiah says. A light has dawned for those walking in darkness. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light, and that is Jesus. He is the light that can lead us out of the darkness. And by leading us out of the darkness what he does is he goes to the cross and he pays our debt. He dies to satisfy gods of righteous anger at sin. He pays for that in our place. By dying on the cross, he is triumphing over the, the spiritual powers of darkness and any hold they might have on us. And he is raised from the dead in power and might and glory. He ascends to be with his Father, and he will return someday to establish his kingdom, and we are invited into that. So, the gospel is a seed-like message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus. And who is the message for? Who is the message for? It's a seed-like message of Hope, truth, and grace about Jesus for all people. For all people. Look at what he says. In verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And then in verse 6, he says, This word of truth, this message, the gospel has come to you. As indeed in the whole world. Of course, he's talking about the Roman world. In the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. It's a message that is for all peoples. And this has been promised from the beginning. This is what Jesus said. He didn't say, hey, this is just for you guys. This is just for Jews. This is just for... Instead, Jesus said, this is for all nations, all people groups, all languages. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18 and 20. And Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Meaning, someday this age will come to an end. Jesus is going to return and start a new age, and all nations are invited into that. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says the same thing, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's the marching orders, but this isn't just like a thing that came along with Jesus. It's not like Jesus came along, and he's like, you know, I am so good, and this message is so good, that we ought to, we ought to get it out. We ought to get it to the world. No, this has been God's plan from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God's promise to Abraham that kicks off this whole deal. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations be glad. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant who I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. He's talking about Jesus. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Christianity is a global thing. It is for all people. And this is why our mantra is good news for all people. And that was our mantra before I got here. I love it. Good news for all people is the Christian mantra. It was good news for people in Colossae and in Corinth. It was good news for people in Jerusalem and Rome. And today it's good news for people in St. Louis and Cape Girardeau. It's good news for people in New York City and Beijing. It's good news for people in Sydney, Australia, and Malawi. It's good news for all people. Timothy Tennant is the president of Asbury University, and he has this book, and uh, it's really good, but here's what he says. The lifeblood of Christianity is found in its ability to translate itself across new cultural and geographical barriers. Today, the statistical center, this is fascinating, listen to this. Today, the statistical center of Christianity is located in Timbuktu. This means that for the first time since the Reformation, the majority of Christians are now located outside the Western world. In 1900, there were less than 10 million Christians on the entire continent of Africa. Today, there are over 367 million, comprising one-fifth of the entire Christian church. Christianity is a global movement and people think that in America because religion and everybody's spiritual but not religious, religion is in retreat. That means that that's what's happening all around the world and people 30 years ago, sociologists were predicting that religion would eventually die out and the opposite is happening around the world and that is good news. So our mantra is good news for all people. This means this message is for Democrats and Republicans. It's for rich people and poor people. It's for homeowners and renters. It's for black people and white people. It's for old people and young people. It's for educated and uneducated. It's for men and it's for women. It's for communists and it's for capitalists. It's for urban and it's for rural. It's for Americans and internationals. Christianity is not a Western American Republican capitalist thing. It is a Jesus thing for all people. And the lifeblood of Christianity is its ability to translate itself across cultural and geographical borders. And this means if the gospel is for all of those different categories of people, that means that it's also for you. it's also for you. Regardless of your past, your background, regardless of your privilege or lack thereof, regardless of your behavior, your failures, your embarrassments, regardless of how long you've spent wandering down the path that you've been wandering down, this message is for you. Jesus came and died for sinners and if you're a sinner, you qualify. So then, How do we receive this message? If it's a message that's like a seed of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus, and it's for all people, then how do we receive it? It takes root by faith. It takes root by faith. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Verses 5 and 7 say, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. Um, Skipping down in verse 6. It's growing among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. Do you see that? Verse 5, it says that we have to hear the message. Verse 6, it says you heard it, you understood it, you learned it. The way that this message takes root is we hear it, we understand it, and then we believe it. That's the way that it takes root. This is consistent with Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. We looked at this a couple months ago. How then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How are people going to hear and believe unless they hear from someone preaching? That's how this message takes root. So let me ask you something. Is your heart open to receiving the seed? Is your heart open to receiving the seed? Do you have faith this morning in Jesus? I'm not asking if you signed a card or if you got baptized one time or if you joined the church in 1952. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking in your heart, do you know that you are a sinner who needs a savior? And are you trusting in Jesus to be the one who can save you? Are you allowing that message to go deep and take root? Jesus says in Mark chapter four, you should go read Mark chapter four this afternoon. He says that the seed can be choked out by the cares of this world. That it can suffocate by the cares of this world. He also says that the seed can be dried out by how we respond to trials. That when life gets hard, the seed can be choked and dry out. What are you doing with the seed? What is your heart like for receiving the seed? And what happens when the seed takes root? How will you know if the seed starts to take root? How will you know? And here's how. Is you will start to have love for all the saints. You will start to have love for all the saints. That's how we'll know that the gospel took root in your heart. Look at verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, since we pray when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. That's the fruit. That's what Christianity all boils down to. Is faith in Jesus worked out in love for others. That's Galatians chapter 5. He says, look, circumcision doesn't matter anymore. What matters is faith working through love. And in this little text, I love these little eight verses. They're kind of hard because it's just one giant run-on sentence, uh, basically. But um, what I love is the family dynamic, the community atmosphere of Christianity is on display in these verses. He says in verse one, our brother, So he's referring to this guy who's not related to him as his brother. He says, We are in Christ together. So uh, in verse 2, he says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In the original language, that sentence is bookended by in Colossae and in Christ. I love that. He says, Brothers and sisters, Father, God, Father of Jesus in verses 2 and 3. Verse 4, he says, love for all the saints. Verse 6, he says, it's all over the world this is happening. Verse 7, he refers to Epaphras as our dearly loved fellow servant. Verse 8, he says, you have a love in the spirit. In Christianity, all believers become family. We become equals in this loving community. See, in our flesh, we have a tendency to rank ourselves, to compare ourselves, to discriminate. In the church, we are all equals. There are no little people and there are no little places. We have a tendency to discriminate ourselves from where we're from, where we live. Growing up, I was from the South. A lot of people hated Yankees. Uh, People discriminate based on what side of town you live on or what school you went to. We discriminate just based on who we are. If you ever hang out with kids, this is crazy. Kids will just start, like, seeing who's taller than the others, just on their own. And it's like, why is that relevant? Because there's something in us that wants to compare and discriminate. We do this as adults when we name drop. But in the church, there are no little people and no little places. Everyone is united in Jesus. Colossians 3:11 says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Um, B.J. Thompson is a, a black pastor uh, that I um, follow. And here's what he says: He says, referring to black, Asian, Hispanic, white, or native believers as your brothers and sisters gives the world a glimpse of God's family. So the gospel is a seed-like message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus for all people that takes root by faith and produces a loving family. And where does that seed-like message come from? From faithful, praying servants. From faithful, praying servants. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, Just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is this man who's from Colossae. It's a small town. But one day he met Paul. He heard Paul preaching. He believed the message and he thought, I need to let people know about this. And so here's what Epaphras did. He moved back to his hometown and he started this church. And then after the church got going, he left the church to go with Paul on some of Paul's journeys. And in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, at the end, Paul is listing these people who are saying hi to the Colossian church. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you? This is chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, the surrounding towns. This gospel has come to these people because of A faithful, praying servant. And think about how the gospel got to you. Think about all of the steps that had to happen for the gospel to come to you. And now imagine who else needs to hear? Who in your circle of influence needs to hear? And if Epaphras went, why not you? If Epaphras was faithful, why not you? And the work, the work of harvesting, of seeing seeds planted and fruit coming up, it actually doesn't start with going and preaching, it starts with praying. And that's why he says about Epaphras that he is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The work starts in the prayer. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The Epaphrases are few. The people who will be faithful ministers to go out and work the field, to plant the seeds, to see the harvest come. They are few, so here's what you need to do. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What if you started to make that your prayer? God, would you send more workers out into the field To plant more seeds of the gospel so that we can see more fruit. Let's pray.